Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is philosopher Julian Bergini. Julian's books include the best-selling collection of thought experiments, The Pig That Wants to Be Eaten, a very short introduction to atheism, and his account of living in England's most typical postcode area, in every town. That area, by the way, is in Rotherham. His latest book is called simply Complaint, and is an attempt to rescue that much maligned concept from the armies of grumpy old men and women. You only have to think of John Cleese declaring, I wish to register a complaint, to realise that there is something almost intrinsically comical about complaining. So is making a case for complaints serious, ethical, necessary dimension doomed to failure? So here's Julian telling me what attracted him as a philosopher to the notion of complaint. What interested me about it, I guess, is that complaint is one of those things where you come up against the distinction between the way things are and the way they ought to be. That's something which is at the core of morality, moral thinking and so forth. And yet we think of complaint these days, I think, mainly in terms of, you know, whinging, moaning, getting money off something, getting a refund and so forth. So I was interested in, you know, complaint as not a trivial sort of moaning phenomenon, but something that's actually very central to us as moral beings. And the more I thought about it, the more other things came out from that. And I get the impression that the more you thought about it, the more pervasive you found it to be in, in lots of our everyday life and the way that we approach many aspects of our world. Well, that, that is true. I mean, the, the problem is if you focus on any topic, the danger is you're going to see it everywhere. I mean, this is a, a real danger of any kind of theorising, you know. So you, know, you get into Freud and everywhere you suddenly start seeing phallic objects or something. And also your religious maniacs start seeing crosses everywhere. They see them in window panes, you know. It's no longer of four panes, it's a cross. But it's, it's not, <laughs> I don't think, an exaggeration to say that complaint is everywhere. I mean, I, 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 was, I was noticing, you know, how much complaint you get uh, just in, in newspapers, how much of the news is about complaint, the government are doing things wrong, services are poor, the schools are rubbish, how much conversation is about complaint. I did notice that, you know, a lot of what people talk about is, is what is wrong. So it is genuinely everywhere. And I, I, I did it myself. And it's, it's not a surprising what people do came, complain about and why. I mean, I found the thing I complained most about uh, was... The Sunday paper. I got the Sunday paper, and I'd sit. I'd be moaning about, you know, how they've, it's full of rubbish, and this isn't a proper news story, etc., etc. And I realised, you know, the Sunday paper, which I associate with leisure, relaxation, was something that was just an excuse to moan, really. So it has this idea of complaint, kind of as a, a leisure activity, a leisure pursuit. I think there's something in that. But what you want to do in the book, I guess, is to kind of rescue complaint from merely being low-level grumbling to show that there is a sort of there is a sort of ethical dimension to complain there's a sort of higher order of complaining yeah that is that is right i think it's very important to our capacity to be moral beings that we are able to first notice that there is a distinction between the way things are and the way they ought to be and then secondly to articulate that now we should also do something about it if at all possible but I mean complaint is where more serious protest and change and reform start so it's quite important to get it right and so that led me to think about okay well what are the times when our complaints are right and justified and when is it just a waste of space a waste of breath and the basic idea I had there was that if complaint is about you know this difference between the way things are and the way they ought to be then the things it's most appropriate to complain about are things which genuinely should be other than they are 
and secondly, could be other than they are. And what you actually find is a lot of the time we complain about things where one of those two conditions doesn't obtain. So although it's not completely useless to complain about something that can't be changed, I mean, there can be a virtue simply in getting it off your chest, or it's also an expression of your values to say that this is wrong. You know, it's to go on about things, to dwell on those things isn't constructive. What's perhaps more interesting are those things where we talk as though things should be different, but on reflection, perhaps really they shouldn't. And so that's when I go into some of the different sort of species of complaint where that's the case. You talk about a sort of process, I think you call it psychological decluttering, of sort of, sort of teasing apart these different species of complaint in order to see what's going on beneath the surface. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one, one example I quite like is what I call contradictory complaints. You find this in politics a lot, that you can sit down in a, in a, in a pub and people will talk about politics and one minute they'll be complaining that the problem is, you know, the different political parties is there's nothing to choose between them. And this is what they go on and on about. But later in the conversation you might find what they're complaining about is that the parties bicker for the sake of it and really they should all sit down together and do what's right for the country. Now, I mean, what they're doing is they're blatantly contradicting themselves. They're saying both that the parties are too similar and that they disagree for the sake of it. Now, that's interesting because I think it tells you something quite important actually about, reflects something very important about uh, politics is in a sense politics works when it maintains that tension between disagreement and consent. You need a certain amount of disagreement between political parties in order for there to be choice and differences of opinions but you need a certain amount of consent and cooperation in order for anything to function at all in Parliament. So you know, our complaint reflects something important about the thing we're complaining about. But from our point of view, it's, it's important for us to recognise that actually uh, our, our complaints may be self-defeating in a way, in that if things really did change as we are moaning, then we would lose something valuable perhaps. Now, one of the things you did in order to write this book was conduct a survey of your own into how and what people complain about. So what, what were you trying to get at there and what did you discover? It's always a bit perilous to conduct a survey because your know, research methods can be very dodgy. So I took this to be indicative. I did get a large number of responses, about a thousand, so that's a good number. But of course, they were self-selecting. It wasn't a random sample. But nevertheless, I think there were patterns which were quite real. Well, I mean, I, I was partly just interested, again, in you know what do people think they moan more about? I mean, I was asking them to report on their own perception of it. And also what they thought other people in their countries complained about as well. But then, of course, I was interested in seeing what difference it made, whether someone was... I looked at male-female difference, age difference, and also most of my respondents were from Britain and the United States, and what difference that made. And it was quite curious. What was, what was particularly curious was that although different groups complained about different things in different ways, the kind of average level of complaints seemed to be remarkably consistent. It is almost as though we have a kind of a complaint muscle or complaint need which we need to exercise a certain amount. All that differs is how much uh, we do it. I mean, another interesting difference is the whole male-female thing. And this actually has alerted me to something which I think has wider significance. You often read reports which will tell you women do this more than men, men do it more than women, etc., etc., and, you know, there's good numbers behind it, so it seems to be true. And sure enough, I found differences in the complaint patterns of men and women. But what was interesting was the differences between British and American people were more marked. Now, what that meant in this particular sample was that an American woman, her patterns of complaint were closer to that of an American man than they were to a British woman. 
what's that? You know, the moral of the story there is nothing to do with complaint, I think, is always be suspicious when people say, yes, there is a real statistical gender difference because it may be true, but it may also be true that the cultural differences are even greater. So, you know, one, one can make too much of a discovery that men and women are, are on average different. But one, one of the, the broad cultural conclusions that you did venture was that the Americans tended to be more optimistic and the Brits tended to be more pessimistic. Yeah, that's because I was asking about whether they expected their complaints to really make a difference. And that was quite interesting because the proportion of Americans who complained with the expectation or hope that it would actually change things was about double the proportion of British people who did. It's just one study, but if you look you know, anecdotally at your experience of, of Britain and America, I think it does fit other things we know. Americans have a greater belief in, if not the perfectibility of the, the human race and of society, then things can get better. They really do think that. British are much more pessimistic. We tend to think that you know, the best of our history is behind us, everything is in decline and so forth. And you know, very few people in Britain complain with the expectation it's actually going to change things and, and make things better. So, you know, you, you can see how the, the very purpose of complaint, what people see the, the point of it, uh, varies a, a lot according to your expectations about whether or not things can genuinely change. Now, talking about change, I wanted to ask you about religion and religious impulse. How far would you push this view that there is something intrinsically antithetical to complaint and protest and change inbuilt in the religious worldview of the, of the major religions? Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting line of thought. I mean, I started on it by asking what you might think is a, a silly question, which was, what was the first complaint in human history? Now, okay, so let's forget human history. Let's go back to the creation stories of, of the Judeo-Christian tradition. When was the first complaint in the history of the world according to the, to the Bible? And I think the myths tell us something here. The first complaint was not from the serpent, nor was it from Adam and Eve. It was actually God who, who made the first complaint. God complained that uh, Adam and Eve had disobeyed his order not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. Now, the point is, of course, that in eating from the fruit, they became capable of distinguishing between what was right and what was wrong. Going back to what I was saying earlier, distinguishing between the way things are and the way they ought to be. So really, they only became fully moral creatures after the fall. So there's this paradoxical element of the fall. The fall is actually, rather than our undoing, it's, it's our making as moral creatures. Before that, we were just complete innocence with no sense of right or wrong. God doesn't like that. God then banishes humanity from the Garden of Eden forever. So just merely gaining the capacity to complain is seen as somehow against God. But in general, yeah, the most of the major religions, they do teach us not to complain. They do teach us to accept the way the world is, that things are God's will and so forth. You know, there are traditions of social teaching, particularly in the Gospels. So there are ideas about, you know, making positive social changes. But overwhelmingly, the majority of religious teaching is about acceptance, not about complaint. And I, I don't think that's a good thing, frankly. I think it's very important. All the major social reforms in history have started by people saying, no, it isn't OK. Things aren't right. You know, we, we, we should have change. Although, as a matter of fact, fortunately, a lot of religious people in the past haven't gone along with the 
I'd say the more mainstream teachings, which is that you know the, the world is imperfect. Don't worry about it. They, a lot of religious people, as a matter, as a matter of fact, protested a lot about the way things are and have changed them. In that respect, I think they're perhaps not representing the uh, dominant trend within the actual theology of their religions. Do we live in a grievance culture, in your view? Well, I, I th- yeah, I think we, we do seem to be in a grievance culture. By, by that I mean that when things go wrong, we look for someone to blame, look for someone to, to sue at an extreme, but if not to sue, someone who is going to take responsibility for it, someone who can put it right. Now, there are reasons why that's sometimes a good thing, and I think that you know you don't want to go back to the time where people never kicked up any fuss. Yeah, people talk about things going too far in schools, for example, with child protection legislation. Okay, maybe they have, but we certainly don't want to go back to the time where basically teachers could uh, abuse physically or otherwise children at will and no one would, would question it. But I think that there is a problem that when things go wrong, people are becoming increasingly unable or unwilling to accept that that is just sometimes the way life is. There's always a sense of entitlement now, that we are all entitled to all the good things in life. To the extent that if you can't have a child, it really is someone else's responsibility to give you the, the means to do so. I'm not saying that people who have difficulty having children shouldn't be given help, as much help as the state can give them to, to do that. But I think there's a, there's a subtle difference between saying, yes, the state should provide that, and thinking, you know, it's, it's the absolute duty of, of society to make sure people can, can have children and so forth. So I think there is that element of grievance. And I think, again, that's problematic because complaint at its best is a moral thing. It's about protesting against what should, should be different, what is morally wrong. And when it becomes rather a protest against, you know, I'm not getting what I think I'm entitled to. Um, It becomes more self-serving and egocentric. It's not the best form of complaint. And do you see a a correlation between the the decline of religious faith and the rise of individualism with those expectations, those entitlements that you've just been talking about? Because if you're not entitled to a child, the the sort of anterior view was that it was a blessing, it was a gift, it was something which which God bestowed upon you. With the removal of religious faith, does that then allow in this sense of one's own entitlement? I think the decline of religion is, is something to do with that, but perhaps in a slightly more general way. I think that what happened is in the past, people had a sense of what grounded ethics. Now, it wasn't very thought through and I think the role of the church is probably exaggerated slightly I think that its social regulation has really been at the heart of most practical ethics in most of the time people do what is approved of what will get uh, allowed by the culture and so forth but you know society has become much more fragmented uh, communities less cohesive and the authority of religion has gone and so what's happened is that there isn't a clear, shared, assumed basis for values. And I think into that vacuum has come law and rights. We now tend to think of what is right or wrong in terms of what we're entitled to, what the law states, what the rules say, and so forth. So, for example, you know, a lot of people see no problem with tax avoidance, which is not paying tax by legal means, and tax evasion, which is actually, you know, just illegally not paying taxes. They think if there's some legal 
process you can use to avoid paying taxes, then that's fine. But actually, you no, know, taxation is a moral issue. We all think we should all pay our fair share. And it seems to me that if you, if you find a way which may be perfectly legal but is sneaky of not paying taxes, which other people are, you know, that should be just as unacceptable. So I think this is the, this is the real issue, that law and rights and entitlements have kind of filled the gap where we used to have ethics. And I'm, I'm not sure how, what we should do about that, because I don't think we can or should go back to a time when we just took our moral lead from religious leaders and so forth. I do think that, you know, there is a philosophical basis for ethics, but it's but I'd yeah, be the first person to admit that's a hard sell for people. It's not easy to to get people to actually base their ethics on a a, a thought through philosophy. But I think that you know, in terms of direction we should be going, we need to do something to try and give people a greater sense that it's not just about laws and rights and entitlements. That they need to think of the, the moral basis of, of of the way they behave. Do you believe that the the risk aversion that's that's so prevalent can be rolled back in in some ways? Well, the risk aversion relates to this because uh, in a, in a culture where it is all about you know, rights and entitlements and suing and so forth, it, you get to that situation whereby no one wants to be the person making the mistake because if you make the mistake, you carry the the cost. Someone will will trace it back to you. So again, that's a, a, another problem when when. It all comes about legal responsibility rather than moral responsibility. What that actually leads people to do is not to behave better, but simply to cover their backs and to try and avoid doing anything which might risk litigation. But again, there are, there are tweaks we can do with that. We, we don't want to, again, we don't want to get to a situation whereby actually we just rip up all the fire regulations and let people do what they want, for example. But, you know, the incentives, you can rebalance the incentives, I think, which makes things a little bit more sensible and allow people to take responsibility knowing that they're not going to be necessarily hauled up in front of a court if they if, if they get, things go wrong. We need to be a bit sort of more adult about that, I think. Julian Bagini. Complaint is out now in paperback. You can find out more about all of Julian's books, plus several million others besides, by going to blackwell.co.uk. You'll also find a podcast archive there containing over 100 author interviews. That's all for this Blackwell Online podcast. But I hope you'll join me again soon for another programme. And until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.